My name is Leslie Rowe, and I'm on staff here at Denton North Church, and I want to welcome you guys this morning. Uh, we're glad to have you. If you're visiting and if you have any questions, um, you can ask literally anybody sitting around you, and if they're not a visitor themselves, then they can answer your questions. But you're also welcome to talk to me or to Josh. Raise your hand over here. Um, and we can answer any questions, help you get involved in any way that you might want to. Um, but we're just glad to have you here, and we look forward to helping you find out if this is where God is calling you or helping you find out where he is if it's not. Um, so you have caught us at the beginning of a sermon series, which is really great. We have been talking primarily through our small groups about apprenticeship to Jesus, and we've had three big goals in that. One is to be with Jesus, two is to become like Jesus, and three is to do what Jesus did. So those are the three goals. We're on the first one, be with Jesus. And then we have practices that go along with that goal. So the first practice was prayer. And we talked about that in our small groups, but we also did our sermon series in the fall on the Lord's Prayer, and we took it line by line. And now we're talking about scripture. That's our next practice. So the first one was prayer. The second one is scripture. And our sermon series is going to follow along with that practice. So Jesus studied, used, and loved the Old Testament. And as apprentices to Jesus, we should do the same. So our sermon series is going to be on the good news in the Old Testament. When Josh and I started praying about this and talking about this together, we came to the conclusion that we've been in the New Testament for the last probably two, three years, and that we had not done a whole lot in the Old Testament. And so we wanted to, while we're talking about Scripture, bringing in the part of scripture that I think most of us are a little more afraid of, um, that most of us have a little more trouble with, is the Old Testament. And so we believe that the Old Testament has value for our lives and that it's full of good news. So our sermon series is simple. We have asked people to choose a story from the Old Testament and to tell that story and then to tell why it's important to them or what it is that they connect with or what impact it's had on their relationship with God. And then to point out the good news in the story and then give some kind of homework to encourage us to read further and deeper in the Old Testament. And that's it. That's what our sermon series is going to look like. So today I want to share with you a story about David. And I want to give you a little bit of background and before I jump into the story. The first thing is that only Moses and Jesus were written about more in Scripture than David was. So David is the third most written about person in Scripture. He was the youngest of eight sons and was from the small town of Bethlehem. And he first gains recognition as a young man, most likely a teenager, when he fights the giant Philistine named Goliath. King Saul and every brave Israelite soldier cowered in fear, but David, this little teenage boy, defended God's name and defended the people of Israel against the Philistines. 
women all over Israel, scripture tells us, begin singing his praises. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. In addition, the Bible indicates that David was handsome, athletic, talented in playing the lyre, which is a harp-like instrument, and a proficient poet. Also, Samuel had anointed him to be king of Israel. And scripture goes on to say that all Israel and Judah loved David. Yet instead of accepting and supporting David as the king, Saul tries to kill him. So even though Samuel has anointed David as king, he spends several years running for his life, literally, from Saul. And David had several opportunities to kill Saul, to harm Saul, but he refused to do so because Saul was God's anointed. And even with all of David's success, he was humble before the Lord because he knew where his success came from. However, that was about to change. We find David somewhere in his 40s at the time of this story. He's accomplished some remarkable military feats. He's extended the borders of Israel, and he's secured them against every major surrounding nation. And so he thought to himself, I've done well. I deserve a rest. And this is where our story begins. It was the springtime, and this is the time when most of the kings sent their armies out to do battle after the hard winter was over. And so David sends out his men to fight, but he stays behind in Jerusalem. Now, this is unusual because most of the time the king went out with his men to fight, but David decided to stay back. And after his midday nap one day, he was walking on the roof of the palace, and he was looking out over the city, and he saw a beautiful woman bathing. And so he sent someone to find out who she was. And they come back, and they say, she's the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, what is significant about that is that both Eliam and Uriah were two of David's 30 mighty men. They were men that had been with him when Saul was chasing him and trying to kill him. They were men that had consistently put their lives on the line for David. And so David finds out that Bathsheba, this woman, is married, and she's married to one of his 30 mighty men. He sends messengers to get her, and he brings her to the palace, and he sleeps with her. She, he sends her back home, and later he gets a message from her saying, I'm pregnant. The law required that both participants in adultery be put to death. And so at this point, David has a decision to make. He can either confess, own up to it, face the consequences, or he can try and take things into his own hands, and that's what he did. He tried to take care of it himself. So he tells the commander of his army to send Uriah to him. And when Uriah gets there, David's like, how are things going in the war? Tell me how the men are doing. Just kind of making small talk about things. And then he says, oh, go home and relax. Be with your wife. 
But instead, Uriah sleeps at the palace entrance with the king's guards because at this point, Uriah is more righteous than David. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summons him and he says, why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? And Uriah says, the Ark of the Covenant and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents. And Joab and my master's men are in the open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear I would never do such a thing. So, plan two, David invites him to dinner and gets him drunk. And he's sure that if he does that, Uriah will go home. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he sleeps at the palace entrance with the palace guard. So David writes a letter to Joab, his army commander, and he has Uriah deliver it. And the letter instructs Joab to put Uriah on the front lines, withdraw everyone else, and let him be killed. David is treating Uriah like the enemy when Uriah many times has risked his life for David. And on top of that, David has Uriah deliver his own death warrant. How messed up is that? And the reason Uriah t- can, he can trust Uriah to take it is because Uriah is a trustworthy person. He knows he's not going to read it when he goes to deliver it to Joab. So Joab does what David says. And Uriah is killed along with several other Israelite soldiers, all to cover up David's sin. So Joab sends news to David that Uriah's been killed in battle. And David's reply was this, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Listen to how David talked about his sin. Basically, the sword devours one as well as another is like saying, these things happen. It's, you know, it's no big deal. These things happen. He talked about his sin and specifically here, the sin of murder, as if it was nothing because he had convinced himself that was true. He had convinced himself that his sin was nothing. When Bathsheba heard about her husband being dead, she mourned for him. And when the time of mourning was over, David brought her to his house. She became his wife, and their son was born. And scripture says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And I'm going to stop right there at this point in the story because I think there are two pieces of hard news that we need to pick up at this point. And the first one is that sin will take us farther than we want to go and keep us longer than we want to stay. You see that so clearly in this story of David, how it starts out with him just seeing a beautiful woman But he continues to pursue that and to find out who she is and to bring her to the palace and to sleep with her and then to try and cover that up. It just takes him further and further and further because he doesn't confess and he doesn't bring it into the light. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has has seized you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. 
He will provide a way out so that you can endure it. So if you look at this story, you see several times that David could have stopped all of this. So the first one is he should have been out fighting with his men. If he had been where he was supposed to be, then this wouldn't have even come up. This wouldn't have been an issue. He should have been where he was supposed to be doing what he was supposed to do. The second one is when he saw how beautiful she was, he could have just walked back into his palace and distracted himself and done something different. But instead, he sent someone to find out about her. The third time he could have stopped all this is when he found out she was married to one of his mighty men. At that point, he could have said, no, we, I, yeah, this is, this is not good. I'm not going to go any further. He should have received the news about who Bathsheba was as a warning. And then next, he sent messengers to get her and bring her to the palace. When he got her and brought her to the palace, he still could have sent her back home. But he didn't. He chose to sleep with her. And one thing I want to point out here is that in Scripture, she is always called Uriah's wife and not Bathsheba. And the commentaries that I read indicated that that was because she didn't have a choice in this. David was king, and what he said went, and when he sent for her, she had to come. And so this is not a story about David and Bathsheba's sin. It's a story about David's sin. Um, and I think that's an important thing to keep in mind as we read through this. I kind of forgot where I was now. Oh, then the fifth time that he had a way out of this is he didn't count on her getting pregnant. But when he found out she was pregnant, he could have stopped right there. But instead, he decided to compound his sin and continue going, trying to cover it up. And so he does, it seems like. It seems like he does a good job of covering it up. She comes, he marries her, she has the baby, they're living together, everything seems to be hunky-dory. But if you read in Psalms 32, it makes, it makes it very clear that David's life is anything but hunky-dory right now. Um, it indicates in his writings that this was the most miserable year of his life. He says in Psalm 32, 3, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. David's misery, interestingly enough, is a sure sign that he really belonged to God. If you belong to the Lord, you can never really be happy when you're hiding from him and trying to cover up your sin and move on as if nothing has happened. If you try to move on without repenting and you belong to the Lord, you will be miserable. In fact, David was in a terrible place where he had too much sin in him to be happy in God, but he had too much God in him to be happy in sin. And so he was miserable. And this is where people finally get to the point of confession 
and repentance is in that misery. It's where we stop excusing or minimizing or deflecting the blame of our sin and start to see our sin for how ugly it really is. But we're not good at seeing our own sin. It's one of the reasons that sin will take us farther than we want to go and keep us longer than we want to stay. The second piece of hard news is that sin has consequences. Consequences can be thought of, I think, as the cost of sin. Sometimes God saves us from the consequences, and sometimes he doesn't. And only God knows what is just and right and needed. And if David had taken the time to think through all of this, he would have seen that the cost was way more than he wanted to pay. If David had only known that these sins would directly or indirectly result in these consequences, an unwanted pregnancy, the murder of a trusted friend, the death of his baby son, a daughter raped by his son, one son murdered by another son, a civil war led by one of his sons, a son who imitates David's own lack of self-control and leads him and much of Israel away from God. And I think one of the hardest parts of this story is the truth that innocent people often pay the price for other people's sin. Innocent people are often the ones who suffer the consequences of other people's sin. Bathsheba, Uriah, the other soldiers that were killed with Uriah, David's baby, his other wives who were abused in public by his own son, all of those innocent people suffered the consequences of David's sin. And it's not fair. It's the result of someone else's choices. But one of the points I want to make here, and one of the things that makes sin has consequences such hard news, is that even when we're innocent in suffering the consequences of someone's sin, we are still called to forgive. We're not called to condone or approve or excuse or even reconcile, but we are called to forgive. And if God forgives me my sin, who am I to withhold forgiveness from someone else? So sin has consequences. I want to pick up the story again, and we're going to see Nathan, who is a prophet, coming to speak to David. And when he comes to him, he says this, There were two men who lived in the same town. One man was rich and the other was poor. The rich man owned large numbers of cattle and sheep, and the poor man owned nothing except for one little female lamb he had bought. The lamb was special to this man and his family. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup, and he cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. It grew up with his children. One day, a traveler dropped in on the rich man, but the rich man was too stingy to take one of the many animals from his own herds or flocks to make a meal for his visitor. Instead, he stole the poor man's lamb, killed it, 
and prepared a meal to set before his guest. That story is pretty awful. And that's the story that Nathan told David. And David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. And Nathan looks at David and at the risk of his own life being taken says, you are that man. You are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and wives and the kingdom of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel." Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan's reply is, yes, but the Lord has forgiven you. Yes, but the Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die for this sin. Nevertheless, still consequences. Because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. After Nathan returned to his home, the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife. David begged God to spare the child. If David had taken the time at the beginning of all this to think through the consequences I don't think he would have been able to continue with what he was doing. If he had trusted God in what God said was good and what God said was wrong, he would not have continued and he wouldn't have suffered these severe consequences. On the seventh day, the child died. David's advisors were afraid to tell him because while he wouldn't get up off the floor, he wouldn't eat when the child was still sick, they were like, what is he going to do now that the child is dead? But David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, changed his clothes, and he went to the tabernacle and worshiped the Lord. After that, he returned to the palace and was served food, and he ate. And his advisors were very confused. And they were like, we don't understand this. While the child is still living, you weep, you fast, you pray. But now that the child is dead, you've stopped mourning, you're eating again. And David's reply was this. I fasted and wept while the child was alive. For I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. 
but why should I fast when he is dead? Can I bring him back? I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. And I think this is just a side note. One of the things that particular passage has helped me with a lot is that as long as there is a chance for the situation to change, I can call out to God, I can beg him to do something, but once he has spoken, then I need to accept what he has said. And I need to trust that his will is what's best. And then it says that David comforts Bathsheba, that they become pregnant and give birth to a son named Solomon, and that the Lord loved the child and sent word through Nathan the prophet that they should name him as the Lord had commanded. So there are two pieces of good news that I want to point out in this story now. One of them is that God never refuses to forgive when we repent. God never refuses to forgive when we repent. Notice that when David repents, he says, I sinned against the Lord. He doesn't say I made a mistake. He doesn't say I had a lapse in judgment. He calls it what it is. I sinned. And in Psalms 32, 5, he says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And if you back up to verses 1 and 2, he says, Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. We also get to see the great forgiveness and tenderness of God in giving David and Bathsheba another child. God didn't hold a grudge against them. He forgave David, and then he blessed him. So once we have repented, once we have turned back to God, we receive forgiveness, and we are back in his favor again. God never refuses to forgive when we repent because he's rich in mercy. And the question I have to ask myself is, am I rich in mercy or am I stingy? Because I think it's very easy to be stingy with our mercy. The second piece of good news is that God is faithful to his promises even when we are unfaithful. Broken people are part of God's plan. I do not understand that. I would not have done that that way if I were God. But he chooses to use broken people. And he doesn't let sin define our lives if we turn back to him and repent. God uses us even after we sin, as we see in the life of David. He not only forgives, but he restores. And he can still use us. If you look at David, David's life was not defined by this one time of sin. David's life was defined by being faithful and obedient and a man after God's own heart. Sin didn't define his life. In 2 Samuel 7, we see David make a covenant promise. I mean, we see God make a covenant promise with David. If you look at the kings of Israel, you see they come to power. 
They have some kind of test of their faithfulness to God. They fail that test, and then they die. (laughs) They fail the test, and then they die. And that cycle is repeated over and over and over again. But even though all the kings of Israel, including David, went through that cycle, God said that out of the line of David, a king would come who would not fail, a king who would bless the entire world. He would be a perfect king, and that king is Jesus. David's unfaithfulness to God did not nullify God's faithfulness to the covenant he made with David. The failure of kings won't cancel God's faithfulness. Humanity's failures never cancel God's faithfulness to his promises. God's promise accounts for failure. He's faithful to his promise even when we're unfaithful. And so the question I ask myself here is, do I really believe God can use broken people, both me and others? Do I really believe that? So why I picked this story? I picked this story because as a young woman, this story was so confusing to me. Why did God include this story of David's huge sin? How embarrassing for David and for God. Like, why didn't God just sweep this one under the rug and not put this one in Scripture? Why didn't we just go on with David being a man after God's own heart? Why didn't God replace David with someone better? What a poor example. Why was David called a man after God's own heart? How confusing. The answer to all those questions is because God is not me. God is more interested in rescuing, saving, and restoring than he is in punishment, fairness, and how things look. I would not have called David a child of God, much less a man after God's own heart. If that's what I believe, where does that leave me? If that's what I believe about David and his sin, where does that leave me with my sin? It leaves me utterly hopeless. I had a friend, um, and he and I were singing in a wedding together one weekend. Our dear friends got married in July outside in Oklahoma, and it was very, very hot. But I got there, and my friend wasn't there, and I was like, oh, it's unusual for him to be late. And then we got to the practice before the wedding, and he still wasn't there. And so we sang at the wedding. We went through the whole wedding and everything, and he never showed up. And you know how sometimes things happen that are so out of character that you can't quite wrap your brain around it? I was in that place where, like, of course, I should have called his family to see what had happened to him, but it just so didn't make sense to me that I couldn't get to that point. So I drove home. I was living uh, with my family in Dallas for the summer. I drove home, and I talked to my sister about it, and she was like, Leslie, you've got to call his family right now. And I was like, oh, duh, yes, I need to call his family. And when we called them, they said, He's been missing. We haven't been able to get in touch with him for several days. We were waiting to hear if he had showed up at the wedding or not before we called the police. So they called the police. They put pictures on all of the evening news shows in Oklahoma City. 
Um, we had people searching for him all over the place. And a week or two later, a good friend of mine from Oklahoma City called and she said, they found him and he's alive. And I said, oh, good. And she said, but he's in jail. And I said, what? And she said, he's in jail. And I said, there's no way. And she said, yes. And Leslie, he's in jail and the charges are abusing two children. And the words out of my mouth at that time were, I wish he had been dead. And my mom was sitting there with me and my mom looked at me and she said, what makes you think that his sin cost any more than yours does? He's gonna need a friend. He's gonna need support. He's gonna need hope after all of this. The impact and the consequences of sin are not the same. Some sin, like the sin of David, has way more impact and the consequences are way more serious. However, the price is the same. The price is the life of Jesus. The price is his blood to cleanse us. And it's acceptable sin that leads us to have a disregard for the danger of sin that leads to more impactful sin. So when we have sin that we consider acceptable, we are not in relationship with God. We're not listening to God. We're not communing with him fully. And that leads us into the danger of a more of sin that has a bigger impact. So that's why I picked that story. That story was profound for me in realizing that God forgives our sins and that he's merciful and that while my sin may not have as big an impact, it is just as ugly and the cost is just the same. So for your homework, what I would like for you to do is this story is in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And it is, uh, and also Psalm 51 is David's prayer of confession. So sometime this week, maybe a couple of times this week, read through 2 Samuel 11, 12, Psalms 51, and just ask yourself, what do I learn about sin? What do I learn about the heart of God? And then just take some time to confess and repent of any unconfessed sin that you might have. Second Samuel 11 and 12 and Psalm 51. What do I learn about sin? What do I learn about the heart of God? And take some time to confess and repent of any unconfessed sin. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us such open access to your scripture and to commentaries and to be able to read for ourselves. We know that Jesus trusted scripture. And God, I pray that we'll trust it as well. And I pray that you'll open our eyes as we read to be convicted, to be encouraged to see your heart. God, we're thankful for your forgiveness. We're thankful for your mercy. And we pray that we would be the same kind of people.
I pray, God, that I just pray that we would um, really think through the consequences of sin, um, that we would be thoughtful, that we wouldn't just rush into action. Pray that we'll look for the way out that you've promised you'll provide for us. And God, I just praise you and thank you that even when we do sin, if we repent and turn back to you, that our lives are not defined by that. They're defined by your grace and mercy. And we just love you and thank you for loving us so sweetly and so well. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Josh is going to do announcements, and then another Josh is going to come up and lead us in a last song. Thank you, Leslie. Um, what a great start. Just the Old Testament, I realize we know what kinds of, of kind of feelings that can conjure up in us. It's like there's so much to be difficult to understand. Maybe there's stories that were like oversimplified, and then you went and read it yourself, and you're like, whoa, that is not how that story goes. Um, but as we're doing this this semester, we just want to really encourage you, try to fight through some of those feelings, um, talk to each other about it. It's great to be able just to, to talk to each other about, hey, I'm confused about this. Have you read this? What do you think about it? Um, and just to lean into that and see what good news is there. Clearly, there really is. I think Leslie's story is so perfect. There's really good news in the Old Testament. Our God is really good. His character, if we can if we really look and, and think through it, is really obvious in there. And and, um, and there's a lot of good news to hear. So so just as we're doing that, just be thinking about that. Resist the, the temptation to kind of lean away from it, to not go read the story on your own that week, all that kind of stuff. Just resist those feelings. We've got some announcements, things that you should know about to be involved in our community, want to help you know what you can attend, what you can do, how you can help, all that kind of stuff. The first thing is that today after church is the sound team training, and this is both a training for the current sound team and a recruiting tool. We've got free lunch. We'd love to have you join the sound team and teach you how to do it and feed you in the process. So that'll be right here after church as soon as the chairs get cleared and stuff like that. Uh, convene up here if you're interested in doing that. We'd love for you to do that. It's a great way to serve our community, to help us hear worship every Sunday, to be able to worship our God together, to be able to hear messages of good news and stuff like that. The sound is very important. And so we'd love for you to do that. If you're feeling any bit of like hesitation or whatever, go talk to some of the sound team folks who you've seen do it, Hannah and some others, Anthony, Mason, um, and just ask them, hey, do you think I could do this, or what do you think? And they'll encourage you to do it, I'm sure. But they'll help you know that you can learn how. If you're not tech savvy or whatever, it's not that hard, and they'll show you how and be patient with you. You do not have to arrive as an expert. So don't hesitate. Um, hang out after church and learn how to do sound. Um, and the next thing is that, do you guys still need worship team folks? Okay, yeah, so our worship team, we've got three worship leaders. Um, we're doing a sign-up this way this time. So if you'd like to be part of the worship team, you want to sing, play piano, play an instrument, something like that, um, text Josh McGinty, his number's up behind me, and let him know um, that you'd like to join in and what you'd like to do, or if you've got a few things that you can do, let him know that, and um, they'll, they'll help you get connected to a team and help know how to use you, and we'd love to have you be part of our worship teams. The next thing is just if you want to know about things going on in our community, we have a neat little newsletter, and this past week Clarissa was reminding me that we haven't really talked about it in a while. So if you go to dentonnorthchurch.com newsletter or maybe the, yeah, the QR code behind me, 
that comes out once a week and just tells you what things are happening, what's important, gives nice, easy buttons to click to sign up for stuff or an event to RSVP to or whatever. Um, just hits your inbox once a week. It's super nice and easy, and Sterling and Clarissa both work on that, and they make that work really well. So um, and the other thing is Mighty Networks. This is something we haven't announced in a while, but um, we used to have a very functioning working well Facebook group where people could post about stuff they were doing and like, hey, I'm doing this, or hey, my car broke down, I'm at this gas station, whatever. Just a way for us to talk to each other during the week uh, as a community or encourage each other. Hey, I heard this song, I thought you guys might like it, whatever it is. Um, and Facebook is a little bit of a hot mess, in, uh, to put it uh, mildly. So we had a bunch of people you know, not really getting on there anymore. Or when they do get on there, Facebook is trying to just show them parkour videos and stuff like that, or prank videos. And they're not seeing any of the cool uplifting or needs in our community. So this is a little tool that just lets us have a group that is sort of separate from all that stuff. So we'd love to have you join it. Um, and all of our family of churches, we are part of a family of churches that has five churches in it and also Focus, the campus ministry. Um, all of our family of churches are on there or slowly kind of moving over there. And so we also get to see what God's doing in their churches as well. We'd love to have you join and let us know what you're up to and uh, be aware of things that are happening there's a group of people who watch Hell's Kitchen on Friday night. I'm told it's not quite as like dark and sinful as the word hell might uh, make you think. I'm told it's like more mild or whatever. There's a group of guys who are watching that on Friday nights. Actually, I think it's anyone can go, not just dudes. And uh, they've been posting about that. So just stuff like that that you can you can know about to have fellowship and hang with our community. So we want you to know about that and know how to sign up to that. The last thing is giving. Um, you can give on Venmo, or you can give on our website, dentnorthchurch.com slash donate, where you can set up a recurring gift or give a one-time gift. And this goes to meet a few different things. We want to, one, be able to meet the needs of just having church and pulling this off and being able to pour back into you guys. That's one of our highest priorities. We're all about relational ministry here. And so we want to pour back into you guys and be able to help meet needs that you guys have, as well as needs in our city and our community greater than just our church. And so those are our priorities for giving. So if you want to give a one-time gift or set up a recurring thing, you can do that behind me. I'm going to say a short prayer while the worship team comes back up. Um, Lord, thank you for your good news. Thank you for being a God who forgives and loves um, and who really cares. Uh, you're a God who really cares about the impact of sin, not just on our relationship with you, but also on others. Um, the way that we, we are hurt by other people's sin and that we hurt. Uh, Lord, thanks for your mercy and your forgiveness and your, your, um, you're just not giving up on us. Um, help us to be reminded of that every time that we think we're too far, or we think we're too lost, or we think we're too separate from you, that you are ready for us to turn back to you and you're ready to forgive us with open arms and with love. You're so good to us. Near I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.